Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest installment of Plan C, Ocean-Based Interventions to Combat Climate Change, the podcast series of the Institute for Carbon Removal Law and Policy at American University. As always, I'm Will Burns, the co-host of the show, and I serve as the Institute's co-director. The Institute for Carbon Removal Law and Policy was established to provide a platform to scrutinize the scientific, legal, political and ethical questions associated with the emerging carbon dioxide removal sector. And I'm joined by my co-host as always, Anna Modlaner, who is founder and residence at Marvel. Hello, Anna. Hey, Will. So in this episode, we're joined by two principals of the company Ebb Carbon, one of the leading startups in the world focused on the potential role of electrochemical processes to enhance ocean alkalinity to effectuate atmospheric carbon dioxide removal. Our guests today are Dr. Matt Eisenman, who serves as the chief scientist and co-founder of the company, and Francis Simpson Allen, who is the director of policy and market development. Welcome to both of you. And so with that, I'm going to hand it over to Anna to, to start the pod. Welcome, Matt and Francis. So great to have you on the podcast. And uh, yeah, we'd just like you to kind of start out by briefly explaining your general approach to uh, marine carbon dioxide removal, what it is that App Carbon does um, to kind of, yeah, introduce the listeners who perhaps maybe not so familiar with App Carbon yet. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, at a very high level, what we are doing is removing acid from seawater or brine. And by removing acid from the seawater, the remaining seawater is more alkaline. And so when we return that to the ocean, additional CO2 will be pulled in from the air and stored as bicarbonate in the ocean. So this is a, a form of what's called ocean alkalinity enhancement, but that alkalinity enhancement is done by actually removing acidity. Um, at one level deeper, when you pull acid out of seawater, what you're doing is kind of shifting the carbonate system toward carbonate. It's relatively depleted in dissolved CO2 gas, and that's what causes CO2 from additional CO2 from the air to, to come in. And then the way in which we remove the acidity, um, it's a membrane-based approach, um, and we apply a voltage across that, those membranes. And so that's why you hear the term electrochemistry. The electro part is by applying a, a voltage across a stack of membranes, we're pulling those ions that make up the acid across the membranes and pulling it out of seawater. So you can kind of think of it as like you may have a, a water softener at home, right? A bank of filters that you pass water through. Um, so you can kind of envision it like that. Um, and ideally, we would want, we want to locate these systems in a kind of a modular plug-and-play way at existing facilities that already have streams of seawater or brine going to the ocean. So think power plants that use seawater for cooling, aquaculture facilities, desalination plants. Um, and so in that way, we're taking what is essentially a waste product for them, getting value out of it by uh, increasing the alkalinity and removing CO2 in the process. Thanks for that, Matt. That was that was one of the clearer explanations of an approach that I think a lot of people find a bit mysterious, even, even in our field. So this summer, you partnered with the Pacific Northwest National Lab to conduct field trials in the Pacific Northwest. And I was wondering if you could discuss 
these trials in, in more detail and any lessons learned to date? Yeah, I can start. And Francis, if you want to, to add anything after. Um, so yeah, we're really excited about this partnership. So it's a, a partnership with Pacific Northwest National Lab SWIM, which is a Department of Energy lab. Um, also the Pacific Marine Environmental Lab at NOAA um, and the Salish Sea Modeling Center at the University of Washington. And so, you know, our, the, the approach in this partnership is very intentional to really build the scientific foundations for ocean-based carbon dioxide removal. So the point of this project and this partnership are, um, one, we want to confirm the efficiency of this process. So we, we located uh, an ebb system that has a capacity of 100 tons of CO2 removal per year if you were to operate it. Um, at full capacity, and that's located uh, within Pacific Northwest National Lab. But what we're doing are experiments within the lab just to test efficacy and safety. So, you know, we're pumping seawater into the lab, into tanks, verifying uh, the, the speed at which CO2 is removed in the process and the efficiency. Um, we're improving the modeling tools. So part of this project is the Salish Sea Modeling Center is improving the resolution of their models of the surrounding ocean. Um, and then also um, looking at the, the ecological safety. So biologists at Pacific Northwest National Lab are doing mesocosm experiments in tanks within the lab uh, to test the impact of the process on um, marine organisms. And then we'll be, this is all work that we'll be publishing in the, in the peer review literature, uh, but we're just getting started. So um, I'm not sure we have lessons learned at this point. And, and how does this fit into your larger technological R&D and, and business plans? Yeah, I mean, our, I would say our business plan is first and foremost kind of focused on de-risking, right? So um, a saying within Ebb that I like a lot is how you remove the first 100 tons matters, which is to say, we want to make sure that we are, so in terms of business plans, we want to scale and we want to scale to a point where we can address uh, climate change but we need to make sure we're scaling the right thing. And so what that means is we need to go slow in the beginning in order to go fast later. So it sort of fits into our plans in that we're laying that scientific foundation and de-risking and making sure we're scaling the right thing. And maybe I'll um, add to that, Will. I think we've been tremendously um, fortunate to have this partnership with the DOE and NOAA and University of Washington on our first deployment. That's a spirit that we hope to carry forward as we scale, which is going in partnership on not just the core science, but the deployment in communities uh, with existing industry and others. And what we hope to do is really instill that spirit of transparency into the practice of our work as well. So we couldn't be uh, more thrilled. And I, I have to shout out the US federal government um, at this point, because the, the work of the last few years has really been catalytic in driving so much of the field. We don't take for granted that uh, none of this really was available just a few short years ago. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. We literally just spoke about this on the episode we recorded a couple of days ago, and I was mentioning this there as well. It's mind-blowing to me how different the U.S. government, for example, handles this as opposed to German government or European Union in general right now, um, specifically in regards to field trials. And I find it very interesting what you just said, Matt, that uh, you are focusing on de-risking and sort of going slow in the beginning, 
scaling the right thing. That sounds quite unventure-like to me, actually. I think from sort of venture capital investment point of view, you you usually hear, you know, how can you scale fast? How can you sort of get to venue uh, revenue quickly? And something that David Kowick from Ocean Vision said in our last episode was um, this huge benefit of startup collaboration with academic and government institutions. So I'd like to spend some time talking about that. Specifically regarding field trials, we all know those are incredibly cost intensive. And app is not only collaborating with the PNNL, how you, as you just said, but also with other governmental and non-for-profit organizations such as NOAA and, and Seaworthy, for example. Can you describe the nature of that collaboration and why it's so integral and sort of how that also is changing startup operations? Yeah. Um, so I think for this specific problem in this field, these kind of collaborations are just absolutely essential. Like this is a very unique kind of problem that we're solving that requires all of these um, really world-leading scientific organizations um, to lay that foundation. So yeah, we're working with various organizations, Pacific Northwest National Lab, NOAA, Seaworthy. Um, overall, there are sort of three key pillars of all of, uh, all of that work. Um, one is ecosystem safety and impact. So at Pacific Northwest National Lab, we're doing mesocosm studies on impacts on biology. And then we have actually a separate pro uh, project with the University of Washington to look, I think that's funded by the Department of Energy, to look at um, potential benefits on the yield of shellfish industry, for example, so local um, ocean acidification mitigation. Um, the second is measurement and verification. So there we have that work um, with Pacific Northwest National Lab and the Salish Sea Modeling Center. Um, and then we also have work with um, PMEL, NOAA, and University of Washington as part of the CMATE project where um, we'll be publishing that work soon. So that's work done at uh, Flax Pond Marine Lab, sponsored by the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment. And there we're, again, you know, looking at the, the kinetics and the CO2 removal efficiency um, in real seawater and tanks. Um, and then we have uh, uh, the start of kind of a newly funded project with Seaworthy and other partners um, funded by the NOAA NOPP program, the NOP program, Uh, where we will perform tracer studies to improve modeling. So we'll do an alkalinity release um, experiment with them and improve MRV by doing a dual tracer technique. And then we're part of various RPE projects as well. And then just lastly, the third one is connection to other, the third pillar, right? So ecosystem safety, MRV, and then really how we connect with other CDR approaches. So I think you see a lot of collaborations among the CDR companies, because we are solving a problem that involves the interaction of all the earth systems and the companies tend to focus on one of those systems. So I think collaboration is inevitable. Um, so an example there is we have a collaboration with crew as part of the carbon to sea initiative um, to look at how to optimize the, the weathering process. Yeah, super, super interesting. And so many different levels we could get into. I'm particularly interested in perhaps gaining some more granular insight on how you think collaboration with governments in this regard is really sort of changing the outlook and success of a startup. So you've beautifully sort of painted and and um, listed the the collaborations that you are undertaking. Could you perhaps give some examples where the governmental collaboration has 
quickly advanced, um, for example, the MRV ability or yeah, just access to resources, etc. I can um, I can speak to a high level on what we're seeing come out of the the federal government. That's exciting, um, and I'll let Matt speak to the MRV piece specifically. So, um, so. It very excitingly, as I'm sure all listeners of this show know, last week the White House announced a fast-track action committee on marine CDR. This is the kind of coordination from a federal level that we'll see that has the potential to accelerate across the full spectrum, the full spectrum of MCDR solutions, but also the full spectrum of activities um, and scale points. So we've talked so far today a lot about the core underlying science, the R&D needed um, that's so critical before moving ahead at scale or at pace. But the rest of the life cycle of any of these solutions having a kind of climate relevant impact still needs real government attention and funding. So that looks like everything from having the right incentives in place to deploy in the United States, as opposed to jumping ship to another country. Um, And that includes regulatory regimes, which are fit for purpose, um, but also some of the economic incentives that we've seen CDR pathways like DAC benefit from, um, whether it's government coming in and taking on the risk on the core balance sheet for building out some very capex intensive projects, um, all the way through to the demand side of the market, um, which really needs to see the incentives put in place um, to drive more and more carbon removal um, at scale. Now, this uh, fast track action committee, I think it's called, it's like all these words that mean we're going to go fast for government, uh, code for that on the public sector. We love to see it. I think they have a 12-month mandate to pull together federal agencies um, and bodies to really figure out what the best path forward is on some of these core questions. Um, MRV is going to be a critical component of that, but the rest of the deployment and life cycle is going to be there as well. So it's very encouraging. So you've raised the the specter a number of times of, of financial considerations, right, in, including the possibility of, of, you know, quote unquote, companies jumping ship, right, which we've heard a bit about already in some other contexts. I'm wondering if you have a sense of what additional financial support you think would be critical for, for the U.S. federal government to provide to be able to really viably stand up this this industry in the United States? Yeah, I think there's a, a few core buckets, which you've started to see the Department of Energy articulate as part of their carbon negative earth shot. Um, good start, but we've got a long way to go. Um, so those buckets are really around it, already what we're seeing on the R&D MRV development. Fantastic. Um, we've also seen the DOE put out an intention to fund pilots in MCDR specifically in the United States. We expect this to be much smaller scale than the DAC hubs given the check size, Um, but this is going to be critical to building that public confidence, collective community, transparency in the work that's being done um, so that the the federal government is bringing in some of the resources to enable that, but with it, the transparency and integrity of that work. Um, So we hope to see that expand, let's say. It's a small to begin with and should only get bigger. 
Um, the second really big incentive structure here is the purchasing. So the DOE has announced $35 million, which is a rounding error on their budget, but it's a great start, uh, better than zero, on uh, piloting CDR purchasing. So this is critical on two major fronts. Firstly, uh, when you look at the market signal, what this is saying to the rest of the world is that the US government is looking to account for its legacy emissions and pay the price of cleaning up. The mother, if, if climate change is the mother of all externalities, we know that the markets left to their own devices cannot account for the full spectrum of need. So the federal government, and we hope in the future state governments, um, starting to account for that responsibility is tremendous. It really, really is. Um, so that's, that's a market signal. The other thing that it says is the international climate justice piece. Um, as we're going into COP in a few weeks, looking at the responsibility for historically polluting nations to really pick up the bill for this R&D and piloting for these technologies, but to do so in a way that ensures the deployment long term and at scale is going to be equitable globally. Um, and what we won't see is a concentration of opportunity, economic development, restorative activities concentrated in the Northern Hemisphere, um, but that they're, they're developed in a way that's responsible and transparent enough that uh, the whole world can benefit. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I mean, you often hear about government procurement as a way of helping in terms of uh, economies of scale and knowledge diffusion and thus bringing down costs that can stimulate demand. But I don't think you should underestimate the symbolic value, right, of what it communicates when when governments begin these purchases. And I agree, it's it's extremely modest at this point. But it, it, that symbolic value may be more important than than the money figures, and hopefully the money figures will will escalate if if it, if it bears uh, fruit. Just wanted to also circle back to the question about MRV, and because you mentioned Francis, that that Matt might have some more to say about the meaning of fin governmental financing in terms of MRV. Is it for, firstly? Um, I think we we still wanted to touch on how that financing has perhaps also facilitated MRV development within app. But also, speaking of governmental procurement, I wonder how that, does that automatically come with more regulated or more clarity around MRV as well, for example? Perhaps we do the first section first. I always have this tendency of putting two questions into one question. So let's talk. <laughs> uh, we can take the first part first. Yeah, no, no problem. Um, so the, yeah, on the first question, I mean, I think the federal funding for R&D projects on the topic of MRV has been super important, right? I mean, uh, many of the efforts I described um, and our collaborations are, are funded by either the Department of Energy or, or NOAA or some government agency. So yeah, super helpful. I mean, the MRV, you know, MRV development is something that will take national labs and non-for-profits like Seaworthy and companies and everyone working together. So I think that's critical. Um, on the second question, I think it is true that, you know, right now we have the voluntary market and that's been really successful in jump, jump-starting this whole field um, and probably getting the federal government involved. Um, 
So that's great. But I think as we move toward, if we, you know, we move toward government purchases, then probably the, um, the regulation on maybe, for example, you know, uncertainty quantification uh, required for MRV it may just be more well-defined just by, by nature, I think. Yeah. And perhaps also a sort of incentivizing the focus on that part of the conversation. I mean, we can always only right. do so much at once, right? But um, I guess one of the big opportunities and I guess benefits of governmental collaboration or academic collaboration, like you mentioned, Matt, um, for those who don't know and are less familiar with it, the access to field trial equipment, the access to sort of marine environment, but also the access to sensors and platforms, etc., is very prohibitively expensive. So I'm assuming that those kind of collaborations also allow you to even get your equipment out there and have tools for monitoring like now at SquimBay. Yeah, well, and mm -hmm. the expertise, right? So yeah, in the case of SquimBay, so I believe that's the only Department of Energy facility, a marine facility. So you have pumped seawater coming into the building. So that's very important. Um, and they have the expertise and the facilities to accommodate our 100 ton per year system. Um, and in addition, we're, you know, the NOAA PMEL um, involvement, world experts in monitoring and measurement of seawater chemistry. And then the Salish Sea Modeling Center, world experts at ocean modeling for that region of ocean. So it's, I think it is the facilities, but it's even more so the, the expertise. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. So let, let's turn to another, uh, I think, important issue from the standpoint of uh, both research and, and potential deployment of these kind of approaches, which is, is public engagement, right? So is, as you know, another ocean alkalinity enhancement company, Planetary, has, has uh, experienced some, some headwinds, I think, in terms of their engagement with, with the public uh, in, uh, in England. And when I look at your approach, I think any approach that uses terms such as electro or chemical or acid right, uh, is likely to, to raise some uh, substantial public concerns. And I'm curious uh, if you could describe your public engagement efforts to date and what you might be contemplating in the future. I'll take the first part and then um, Francis can describe our public engagement efforts. Um, so just to your point about the, um, the words, what did you say? Electrochemical and acid, right? So, so actually, I think, I think the context matters. So the word acid is involved because we are removing acid from seawater. Um, so oceans are becoming more acidic with um, ocean acidification due to CO2 concentrations increasing, we're kind of directly removing that problem. Um, chemical is, is part of the description because we're removing an acid. That's a chemical. Everything around us is chemical. Seawater is chemical. Um, I mean, I get your point, Will, but, uh, and then, and then the, the electro piece, um, you know, I think we're, we're used to having electrified, uh, devices all around us, but yeah, we, we use a voltage to separate those ions, but, That said, so I, I get your, your point, but um, in, at a high level, like the details of what we're doing should actually be beneficial. Like we're being very careful to, to verify that and test its impact and its safety. Um, but, you know, we're directly removing acid from seawater and that should be beneficial to organisms, for example, that have kind of suffered under ocean acidification. Um, that said, um, 
you know, when, when people see descriptions of these things, of course, they want to know what's behind them. And I think Francis can describe some of our, uh, our public engagement work. Yeah, I think this is a critical question for anyone doing anything in someone's backyard, right? And uh, not just on MCDR um, or even climate interventions, but um, people expect to have consultation. They want to have a say on what happens in their communities. Um, and if you've believe in democracy, believe in that fundamental principle. So um, Ebb, this is very much baked into Ebb's approach to any deployment. Um, and our, our approach really starts uh, with listening, looking um, to the communities that we're working with um, and taking the time and effort and resource to understand um, what the lived experiences is there. And in Washington, we've heard from communities, but we've heard a lot about the real concerns and pain points that they feel from increased ocean acidification on their livelihoods, on their, um, their sense of stewardship for these ecosystems. We've also heard about the hardships from disappearing coastal industries and the need to rebuild green jobs as part of a just transition. So we're mindful of these local contexts, of these local needs. Um, but as we look to the future, this isn't a box ticking exercise. It's not we've done a public engagement and there's your town hall. It's an ongoing relationship that we have and we invest in with stakeholders locally and we expect that to evolve um, as our, our efforts evolve um, and, and see that as, as an important a partnership as we would have with uh, the national labs and the federal agencies. I think I remember also when we had Mike from Planetary on, he was sort of speaking to how they learned during this whole process that um, in each different place where you might deploy your technology, there's always different circumstances, right? And um, I actually wanted to ask if you're able to speak more about the um, collaboration to find out how your technology might be benefiting and beneficial for shellfish communities as well, because that seems like something that massively facilitates your, your public engagement as well. If there's such targeted and sort of substantial um, co-benefits that you can help other um, stakeholders in the community to benefit from as well. Matt, do you want to speak about some of the core science that we're doing on this? And I can speak a little about the community side. Sure, yeah. So the the project I alluded to, that's just getting started, but what it will investigate is, um, so mussels specifically are, you know, they're attached when they, when they are growing, they're attached to lines and under acidic conditions, they will tend to have a lower yield because they'll lose attachment. So it's exploring, um, you know, you can use Ebb's process to basically, you know, by removing acid, we can essentially target um, seawater chemistry conditions that are more like pre-industrial. So less acidic, kind of ideal for um, shellfish growth. And so investigating whether we can increase that yield um, and prevent um, them from kind of falling off the line uh, by controlling the seawater chemistry conditions. And on a, on a community engagement side, um, Ebb has been um, educating ourselves for some time about what this has meant in practice for communities in Washington in particular. Several years ago now, the governor uh, convened a blue ribbon panel on ocean acidification in the state of Washington. There was a sense already um, that 
the implications were really quite significant across the state's economy, um, cultural resources, uh, recreational resources. So in Washington, there's a great body of work about what does this actually mean for the people and the planet and for that community. Um, and there's a great spectrum of people involved in those efforts. Where we've come in is to understand that context and start to say, can we be of help with the work that we're doing? And what would that look like to go from identifying the risk to um, installing the remediation? And certainly for aquaculture farmers, um, you know, we've we've spoken with several um, who have told us that they're they're shipping in alkalinity and they're dosing um, their shellfish, baby shellfish, um, with alkalinity. That's a cost. That's a carbon price to that. Um, so this is this is an area like again we're continuing to to see what that could look like as Ebb's um, efforts expand. But um, that core science that Matt described is really the foundation for us to continue these conversations around remediation. I want to I ask you both a, a question that I asked Mike. It, it sounds like to date you're getting positive feedback from, from stakeholders and, and communities in the areas in which you're working. But let me just give you a hypothetical. Ultimately, you're, you're at a site where you're planning to deploy this approach and, and you've received the requisite permits from the government but the local community doesn't want you to do it. Would you, under those circumstances, take no for an answer from the local community, or would you deem the government authorization to, to be sufficient to go ahead? I, uh, I hate these <laughs> questions, Well, <laughs> what, what would you do in the, yeah, give us a moral dilemma that we haven't yet had and it's the worst right. case scenario. But, but it, it's, um, it's, I don't even know if it's the worst case scenario. I think there, there, may, be, there may be circumstances that this could arise. And I, I just think it's, a, it's an important question for a, for a, new, a new industry. So I'll, I'll say two things on this. First of all, Ebb's, Ebb's very approach to community engagement um, is not to be in a position where we filed permits and got a green light from regulators and then we're hearing from the community. It's inverted. So it's it's a, it's an ongoing um, effort. We've, I think, spent over 12 months engaging with communities before even filing for permits. So our hope very much is that those those engagements have been meaningful. We've built understanding and folks don't feel so caught off guard and so misunderstood that we would see such opposition. Um, the second thing I'll say is having started life as a community organizer um, in London and then in South Philadelphia for President Obama's re-election campaign, um, I know from experience that communities are not monoliths um, and rarely would you be in a situation where you're open with you know, welcomed with open arms by everyone in a given setting. Um, what's important is that everyone's respected and heard mm. and there's space given to concerns which are meaningfully accounted for. Um, but expecting consensus, um, I don't think is is viable for any effort in any community. So that's there's a balance there. That's interesting. I feel like also, I mean, of course, I understand also Will's questions and it's uh, we're trying to to trigger <laughs> trigger answers here, but I feel like also ideally a governmental 
permit would require some form of community engagement before you even issue it, right? Um, that's and they yeah. do, yeah, and they do. Um, <clears throat> several, not just once, but you know, several permits require um, at least one public comment period, um, and that can generate a whole new set of questions and consultations. And as it should be in a democracy, right? We we expect that. All right, so let's let's talk a little bit about the 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 regulatory terrain so what does that terrain look like for your specific approach for for research and then maybe potential deployment at at the domestic level and then maybe i'll follow up at the international level but what does it look like for what you're doing in uh, in u.s waters at this point who 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 do you need to get authorization from and what what are the pertinent regulatory provisions? Yeah, so EBS work today um, is governed under the Clean Water Act. Um, the NIPDES permit for the reg nerds on the call, everyone will be familiar with. Um, this is not really a, a new concept of um, treating and, and monitoring water that um, is discharged into the ocean. Um, however, while, uh, while we can operate under this framework, it's certainly not fit for purpose. Um, this is a piece of regulation which, when it was written in the 1970s, um, was very, actually quite avant-garde in terms of a environmental protection standpoint, um, but did not account for the world that we live in today, a world that's already climate insecure um, and a world where human activity would be needed at scale in order to remediate the harm that human activity has caused. So the very idea of carbon removal to remediate climate crisis um, or human activity to remediate ocean acidification excesses is not accounted for in these frameworks. They can only account for harm. They can only account for pollution. So while EBS able to operate um, under them today, they certainly won't get us, not just for EBS, but I think as a society, they won't get us where we need to go um, in order to have a climate secure world. So we do need to have a real paradigm shift here and we're seeing efforts in uh, DC to spearhead this. The White House announcement um, highlighted regulatory frameworks specifically. Um, but today, this is really a kind of double-sided coin of opportunity and jeopardy, I think, for, for regulators. Um, on the one hand, they have the opportunity to create frameworks that are going to um, advance and serve, serve as healthy enablers for responsible activities. Um, and on the second hand, there is a jeopardy where the regulations don't catch up to the reality. And what happens is uh, people people seek out um, either lax regimes or not even lax regimes, it's, you know, regimes which are fairly robust, but which have created a pathway for responsible um, testing. Um, Iceland is one example where they have set up what they call a sandbox, a regulatory re regime for MCDR um, and are sharing public-private data on what that looks like. I think we're getting there. I think we're getting closer, um, but it can be a fraught issue. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and, and I also think the point's well taken that a lot of our 
regulatory provisions in this country and even in in international agreements like the the law of the sea convention don't really contemplate a comparative risk assessment right or introduction of materials that are not per se pollution right that can have beneficial impacts right and doesn't really have a path to 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 process whether those are acceptable or not so it's uh, that's going to be an interesting evolution that hopefully happens at some point also i, I was thinking about that then at the international level right so uh, uh, the london convention again recently uh, has been talking about ocean alkalinity enhancements and you know even even delineated electrochemical as one of the three categories that they recognize um do you think in the in the long term their kind of work is going to have implications for for what what eb does um i think first of all the you know the london protocol and the the international regulations here there's um a disconnect in there's often a, a quite significant disconnect uh, between international policy efforts and realities on the ground. Um, and I say that with respect, having spent my entire career before Ebb at the United Nations. Um, it, it's hard. It's very, very hard to pull together regulatory regimes that make sense for the entire world on anything, um, not least on emergent technologies. So I think what we're seeing in some of the swirl around London um, is really driven by by a kind of fear point that there's this idea of uh, folks with big checks kind of driving out into the middle of the ocean and tampering in some way with a collective resource the ocean belongs to everybody it doesn't doesn't respect the national borders in the same way the atmosphere doesn't um so there's 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 some kind of poetry i suppose in that on the prose of it you know the the thing that has to be at the heart of all of these efforts is the science. We have to be led by the science. And I think the the conversations ongoing today about London um, would benefit from being more closely connected to the latest science um, and put a little bit of distance between some of the rhetoric, because there is a, there is a real risk here that the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. Um, and as has happened with London in the past, um, what happens is that national governments don't respect it as a framework because it's impractical. So in the spirit of championing international policy efforts, um, it would be very good for, for them to, to come out with something that does make sense. Do you, think, do you think it may be incumbent upon startups to try to more actively engage as a consequence in those processes to ensure uh, that, that science drives, drives them, perhaps as, as serving as, as observers at these regimes? Or do you think that's a step too far for, a, for small MCDR startup companies to do? Or do you think maybe that's the role of the federal government in this context? I think, you know, any effort that's going to be successful, it's important to have multi-stakeholder engagement. So what we call member states in the international context, federal governments have to represent the interests and the realities that are coming from their countries. Um, civil society is also critical, of course. And civil society 
um, has a role, as we've seen with the ocean acidification community, to really champion what the opportunities are while holding as well. And we're, we're seeing that more and more. Historically, the role of private sector has been met with much more skepticism. Um, and I understand that. There's concerns about incentive structures, especially in uh, nascent markets like the carbon removal market. So yes, I think the the feds do have an outsized responsibility here um, to, to, to demonstrate. But I think you are seeing that, um, at least in the United States context, uh, the proof is in the pudding. The government's doing the work in the, with the national labs. The federal agencies are leaning in. So when they're engaging through the State Department, they have real data um, that's been done in partnership and they can share in transparency to guide those conversations. Super interesting. Assuming that, you know, the governmental legal frameworks sort of progress and move into the right directions, as you just painted, Francis, perhaps we can uh, circle back to the sort of scientific company vision of App Carbon. And particularly, I'd like to focus on one point that Matt mentioned earlier and that you kind of alluded to again now, Francis, is this character of an open system. The ocean is interconnected. It's, you know, going to be difficult to prime to necessarily allocate one ton of carbon to one specific company. And Matt mentioned earlier that you were this is the third pillar of your development. So perhaps could you kind of um, give us an idea of what the next five years ideally look like for for App Carbon and how you're going to contribute to that vision of an open, connected CDR world? Yeah, I think the first thing to say is, I think MRV for ocean alkalinity enhancement and for open systems, like that is a solvable problem. So the way, how that looks in our case is we are releasing this seawater that is slightly more alkaline. We know very well the rate at which we're releasing it. Right, so the alkalinity is aqueous, um, and then we have monitoring and measurements near that point of dispersal. Right, so we can directly measure out to some distance directly the effect of our intervention, and then at some point it spreads enough that the signal to noise ratio means that we can't directly detect it anymore. But then we take all those measurements as far out as we can measure, and those are used to constrain models. And so that means the models are forced to agree with those data, right? Um, and, and then the models are used, um, you know, you run a model in the case of the intervention, you run a counterfactual case where the intervention did not exist and take the difference. And this is how much CO2 is removed. But then a, an important third piece, and this is a big part of, like, back to your question of what's on that MRV piece, what needs to be developed over the next few years is quantifying the uncertainty in the amount of CO2 removed using that methodology and then reducing that uncertainty. And so, you know, uncertainty in the amount of CO2 removed in that description I just um, gave could be there's some from the sensor precision, there's some from data assimilation, there's some from the models. But even now, like we we can do that, right? So we could, we could perform that, um, measurement and modeling exercise and then run the model multiple times with the range of possible input parameters and get a sense of the uncertainty. Because what we want to present to buyers is here is, you know, it's not we removed 100 tons, it's kind of a, distribu a probability distribution of here's the, the likelihood of 
how much CO2 we removed and they can decide how to discount that or how to price that. Um, but, you know, in terms of Ebb's kind of five-year vision, ultimately we, you know, we would love to get to, to a million tons of CO2 per year removal in five years, but that's, that's a very ambitious number, right? That's basically scaling, yes. <laughs> that's scaling up 10, 10 times every year from the current hundred tons and kind of more important than meeting some, it, it's important. We need to, to move as quickly as we can to meet the huge problem in front of us. But again, I think we need to lay the foundation first. So kind of in that's really the goal is laying that foundation of um, quantifying the uncertainty in our MRV approach with partners, publicly validating our efficiency and also the safety, and then making sure once we have the right system, then scaling that as, as quickly as we can. Hmm. But would you say that when, just out of curiosity, um, from my own personal background, would you say that the MRV solutions or the, the measurement and the modeling, which you say you can do today, um, is scalable already? Or is that an approach that is used for laying the foundation at this point in time, but when you're ready with your uncertainty quantifications, etc., to scale, then other technologies, other um, sort of frameworks also need to be developed in order to sort of accompany that scaling or is it in theory everything you know ready to done and it's just a matter of sort of taking the boxes i think we you could do it now but the level of you know the level of uncertainty is what it is at the moment but also if you could use that framework now but it would be a little less than ideal so i think what will happen in that methodology over the next few years is um, fit for purpose models really that contain the key parts to model this specific problem and same thing with sensor networks and that then those models can run fast enough that you can actually get good you know better estimates of uncertainty so basically it's good enough now but it's not great and i think the key is making it better as as we go forward um one key, it's a little related to mrv i just want to will mention this a couple questions ago so i have the the chance to give my opinion on this that electrochemistry being considered a specific category To me, this happens a lot in different reports and, and so on. And it never made sense to me because when you're thinking about MRV or any other aspect of this, you can think about there's the source of the alkalinity, then there's a processing of it. So you have some source, then you have a process to give you your ultimate alkalinity type that you're, dis that you're dispersing, right? And so in our case, we happen to use electrochemistry to create alkalinity in seawater from brine. But you can also use electrochemistry to do um, like direct ocean capture CO2 stripping. You can use electrochemistry actually to generate solid alkalinity. So it, mm, that's a really the fact that you use electrochemistry mm -hmm. is not really the important piece for a lot of these questions. Yeah, that's a really interesting sort of categorization um, that I think also puts off a lot of people who are trying to understand it or that sort of complicates the whole conversation where really what you're talking about is how to make sure and how to verify, model, measure the uncertainty of how much carbon was removed from the atmosphere into the ocean, no matter how you sort of initiated that to an extent. Exactly. Right? Very interesting. We are uh, approaching the, the, the hour mark. So I'll let, we'll close the, 
or give the closing remarks. All right. Thanks, Anna. Uh, well, so I'd like to uh, thank uh, Francis and Matt uh, so much for uh, joining us uh, for this episode. Uh, I know it was a, a long one, but I thought we had a lot to talk about. Uh, as always, we'd like to thank our listeners for joining us. Uh, if you can, please like and share this episode and leave a review wherever you listen to, to podcasts. Uh, we'd like to also thank Additional Ventures, an organization that, among other things, focuses on the potential role of ocean-based carbon removal approaches to uh, combat climate change and their support of the uh, Plan C podcast. And uh, so for now, uh, on behalf of Anna and I, goodbye. And thank you, Francis and Matt. <laughs> thank you, Anna. Thank you, Will. This was a fun conversation. Yeah, thank you.